Sudan in focus on the voice of America. I'm John Tanza in Washington, working on this program very much. Here are some of the top stories making news across South Sudan this Tuesday, October 18, 2022. Experts working on South Sudan's permanent constitution say there is no money to fund the process. The assembly has been dealing with the budget. And when they're dealing with the budget, almost everything is uh, off limits. At this moment, the bill has not yet been retabled. And are you safe from the effects of a nuclear weapon? In the event of actual nuclear war, we know that the world will suffer. We'll, we'll see um, if some of the studies show that up to 5 billion people will are at risk of starvation. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons says the threat of nuclear weapon is becoming a reality in the backdrop of the Russian threats in its war with Ukraine. Seth Sheldon is the United Nations liaison for the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. He says African countries should join the campaign to abolish the use of nuclear weapons by signing and ratifying the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. The United States, Russia, France, China, the United Kingdom, Pakistan, India, Israel and North Korea have stockpile of nuclear weapons. Selden says if a nuclear weapon is used by one of the nine countries, its effect could reach some African countries. Uh, nuclear weapons have been around for over seven decades uh, and there's been an effort even since the very beginning of the United Nations, the very first resolution of the United Nations was to work towards solving nuclear weapons and, and that we you know, all need to figure out a way to protect the world from someone else using them. Uh, and we've engaged in many processes, uh, people long before I showed up, to get nuclear armed states to lead a process towards disarming. And we'll, here we see ourselves in 2022, uh, no safer than we were. Uh, in fact, many experts would say at the most dangerous time uh, for nuclear weapons, risk of use. And uh, uh, non-nuclear weapon states recognizing that the nuclear arms states were not taking us to where we needed to be. Talk to me a little bit about um, your encounter with the African countries trying to, you know, bring them on board to join the campaign for the ban on nuclear weapons. Talk to me a little bit about some of your encounter. Obviously, there, there are many, uh, many different kinds, of, over 50 different kinds of encounters that we have. But, uh, you know, largely we see uh, over and over again that these states say, you know, they, we're being held hostage by these states that have these weapons, that start wars using these weapons as some kind of defensive shield, as we're seeing, in, let's say, right now and with Russia attacking Ukraine and uh, holding the whole world hostage uh, by virtue of its, you know, what, what it's done to say, like the food supply and the refugee crisis in ways that have affected other countries. And so um, many African states, when we engage with them, are keenly aware of, of the role that the nuclear hierarchy plays. I mean, South Africa, for instance, has been one of the loudest voices behind the TPNW there along with Nigeria, part of the core group of states that 
brought about the negotiations for the TBNW. And they have, in very, in no uncertain terms, referred to the nuclear world order as, as apartheid, you know, the states that have and have not. Um, now, again, all, all states have different relationships with nuclear arms states and their different alliances and different approaches to the treaty. They're not all coming on board in the same way or at the same speed, but we have seen that there's universal support for the treaty in some fashion, uh, and we can see this through, for instance, how they vote on the resolutions on the TPNW that happen every year at the General Assembly of the United Nations, that they're all you know, universally supportive. What is preventing the banning of nuclear weapon? Why is it not banned? It's not banned because uh, a small number of leaders in a small number of states see it as in their interest to perpetuate the existing world order, to, to continue to, to have them and to continue to use them. Uh, I think we see uh, a, a military-industrial complex that has perpetuated the, the desires of certain power holders and, and money holders to continue to keep things as they are. Um, but I also think we're seeing that changing, and I think that finally there's a mechanism for which states can voice their opposition to the status quo and, and find a new way forward to bring us to a safer future. You're bringing this topic now at the backdrop of what is happening in Russia, the war in Ukraine. Russia has invaded Ukraine and is threatening to use uh, nuclear weapons. Is this something that African countries should take very serious? Because, I mean, someone in Africa will say, well, we are very far from Ukraine, we are very far from Russia. Why should we care? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a, fair, a fair response because uh, I think also the fact that we haven't seen nuclear weapons used in war since 1945 uh, means that a lot of states and a lot of us who were not around in 1945 may not fully understand what these weapons are and what they can do. In fact, the weapons and the weapons programs have gotten so much more dangerous since then. And we've seen over 2,000 nuclear weapon tests that have irradiated communities and destroyed like lands in, in, in almost all of them in the global south. But these are, but nuclear armed states don't test them on their own people, or if they do, it's on indigenous people and marginalized communities. Uh, but for the, in large part, you know, uh, we've seen that the, the that, that France tested in the Pacific, and that the uh, the French and in and in Algeria, you know, and that Russia tested in Kazakhstan. And when we see that these programs are continuing, these are the communities that are most at risk. But not just that. I think we've seen new data showing what the consequences of a nuclear exchange would be between nuclear armed states. And in the event of actual nuclear war, we know that. The world will suffer. We'll, we'll see, um, and some of the studies show that up to five billion people will have, are at risk of starvation in the event of a, of a war between the U.S. and Russia. Uh, this is not, a, and this is due to um, the fact that nuclear weapons are not just the effects of them are not just limited to the regions in which they're used. Well, there's the the radiation effects are well known and well spoken about as happening. Uh, beyond the immediate blasts. The immediate blasts would incinerate everyone in the vicinity of a bomb, and the fires, which would burn hotter than the sun, would destroy people immediately in those areas. 
the radiation, depending on which way the wind blows, will continue to kill people potentially for generations. But even perhaps more widespread is this concept that you and your listeners may have heard about. It's the concept of a nuclear winter. The fact that in the event of the use of a nuclear weapon over a populated area, the resulting cloud that would form from the ash and soot and debris that would be lofted high into the upper atmosphere beyond where the rain and precipitation could bring could, could take it away fast enough would cause cooling uh, would, that could last for you know seasons to come uh, that could destroy crops and all around the world and disrupt the global food, food supply. Seth Selden is the United Nations liaison for the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. He spoke with me via Skype from New York on Monday. Officials working on a permanent constitution for South Sudan say the process could take longer due to lack of funding. The country's new roadmap set September 30th as the deadline for the completion of a permanent constitution for South Sudan. Sheila Pony has more for viewers from Pibor. The drafting of South Sudan permanent constitution was supposed to take place in three phases. First, a law to govern the process was to be enacted. The bill was presented in Parliament one week after the ASPLM I.O. boycotted in July and passed by lawmakers in the same month. But face the same handlers down the road still has not been enacted into law. John Natana Abram, Secretary General of the National Constitution Review Commission, explains. There was a situation whereby actually members of the assembly, some of them boycotted some sessions because of the Political Parties Act. And now, as they were returning to the assembly, the understanding was that some of the bills passed in their absence uh, would be retabled. So possibly this permanent uh, constitutional review process bill seems to be one of them. The assembly has been dealing with the budget. And when they're dealing with the budget, almost everything is uh, off limits. At this moment, the bill has not yet been retabled. The second phase of creating a permanent constitution was expected to be the establishment of a constitutional conference to debate and pass a draft constitutional text. Natana says the National Legislative Assembly has yet to pass the Constitution Review Bill and even after passage, it would still need President Salfakir's signature. He says members of the National Constitutional Review Commission and the Constitutional Review Secretariat are waiting for passage of the bill to move forward. We at the commission level, we are awaiting. Once the bill is retabled and it is uh, finally passed by the assembly, possibly, and the presidential assent is also uh, obtained, then the commission is supposed to be uh, reconstituted 45 days following the assent of the president. The new roadmap for implementing the 2018 peace deal states that the National Constitution Review Commission, which is tasked with drafting the constitution, should have sought assistance from regional and international experts by September 30th of this year. Natana says drafting proposed changes to the current constitution can only begin once the bill is passed into law. 
Edmoni Yakani, Executive Director of the NGO Community Empowerment for Progress Organization, says Parliament should prioritize the constitution-making process by enacting a law to pave the way for the reconstitution process. As I speak today, there's no any public explanation from the leadership of the parties and the mechanism of the presidency why they delayed to reconstitute the National Constitutional Review Commission on the 30th of September. And this is disturbing us because if we want to hold election by December 2024 and agreement have sanctioned no election without a permanent constitution, the presidency to explain to us exactly why until today they fail to reconstitute the national Constitutional Review Commission, which is mandated to undertake a citizen-driven constitutional-making process. Thompson Frontaine, Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategy at the Reconstituted Joint Monitoring and Evaluation Commission, or JEMEC, says a trilateral committee was formed to talk about ways of supporting the government in coming up with a permanent constitution. The Africa Union is chairing a trilateral committee that is comprised of the Africa Union, ONMIS, and IGAD. And what it is, this, this commission is, is made up of elections experts that have been provided by those various institutions. And they're in the process of going through the, the agreement and what kind of support they can give to the government. In addition to delays in passing a law to facilitate creating a permanent constitution, Natana says funding has been a major obstacle in the process. He called on international partners to come up with additional funding to make the national constitution-making process one that includes the views and voices of ordinary people. There are some challenges, financial and otherwise, but uh, of course, as people... I think we have a great opportunity before us because even the upcoming elections shall be based on this permanent constitution. The revitalized peace agreement signed by the previously warring parties speculates that the parties must draft a permanent constitution within the transitional period. The permanent constitution is expected to pave the way for free and fair elections at the end of the transitional period which was recently extended by another two years. For VOA News, I am Sheila Pony in Pibor Town, Greater Pibor Administrative Area. Some civil servants in South Sudan's Lake State say they are struggling to feed their families. United Nations aid agencies operating in South Sudan are calling for greater efforts to tackle food insecurity and malnutrition in the country. For VOA News, William Sande Mabor reports from Rumbek. Gabriel Mabor Mangar, who works as a teacher in Lake State, says he struggles to feed his family. Mangar says to ensure his family does not starve. This year, he has been using his weekends to farm the land so that he can produce some food when he is not teaching. Food is really, really becoming difficult. If we can see the standard living where some people are unable to, to earn 10 pounds a day, it, it, it can make it difficult. And of course, in these few days uh, where uh, we have a little freedom of 
movement where you can do some livelihood activities. This is why you can see today that we have some little food that are being displayed. Lake State teacher Hakim Makurmabeng says he too finds it difficult to provide food for his family given the little money he hands to buy food in the market. Mabain says his hopefully leg state residents will soon be able to produce their own food given the relative peace that prevails across the state. He says since Governor Ring took leadership of the state and security has improved. As a citizen of this state, we are really saying that it is very difficult. It is very difficult for a teacher or just a normal citizen like myself to put food on the table for my family because our state has been in communal conflict until the arrival of our able governor, none other than Governor In. So after this post-communal conflict, now Lake State is coming back to normal and uh, we are seeing that the dividends of peace is now displayed in this Freedom Square. World Food Day October 16th commemorated under the theme Leave No One Behind. The main objectives of the day is to increase public awareness of long-term global food challenges and develop more national and international solidarity in the struggle against hunger and malnutrition. In South Sudan, the national celebrations took place today in Lake State, capital Rumbek. Speaking at the event, Mishak Malo, country director for UN's Food and Agricultural Organization in South Sudan, said his agency is committed to supporting the South Sudanese people to become food secure. When your stomach is full, then you don't have any problem. But when you have problems with your stomach, then you'll begin having problems with everybody. So we want to commit as the Food and Agriculture Organization to accompany the people of South Sudan, to accompany the people of Lakes in supporting you to ensure that there is food security. The World Food Program's acting country director, Adeyinka Badijo, said the World Food Day recognizes the millions of people that have no food to eat. Badijo says there are 7 million people in South Sudan that are food insecure. World Food Day is also a day to recognize the millions of people in this world that are hungry. Today we have over 800 million people in the world that do not have food to eat. In a joint statement today, United Nations agencies operating in South Sudan are calling for greater efforts to tackle food insecurity and malnutrition in the country. The agency says, quote, severe multi-year flood events, surging subnational violence and economic pressures are pushing more people into worsening levels of acute food insecurity, end quote. For VOA News, I am William Sandemabur in Rumbek Lake State. listening to South Sudan in focus on the voice of America. Coming up, pressure is mounting on Ethiopia and Tigray rebels to end their fighting. That story is coming up after the break. South Sudan in focus is now 
on WhatsApp. Send us a message on plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. Tell us what's happening in your area or give us your feedback on the stories you hear on South Sudan in focus. We look forward to hearing from you on WhatsApp. That number again, plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, U.S. Africa Business Center is convening its first Africa annual digital innovation competition for African startups. VOA is working as a media partner with the Africa Business Center on this initiative. Out of 17,000 candidates in 50 African countries, the top 10 finalists have been decided and for the next two weeks, we'll bring you a look at each one. We begin with Emadago Ohinike William from Nigeria, whose startup Valley B leverages tech to design and manufacture sensor-enabled beehives that help farmers to monitor their bees remotely. William. I am 23 years old and I am from just Nigeria. I am the CEO and co-founder of Valley B. I and my team applied to the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition because we saw the massive impact it will have in our product. We saw financial opportunity, the mentorship, and also the strategic partnership we can get from being part of this competition. One of the top 10 finalists in this competition means a lot to me personally and also to our startup because this would give us the opportunity to showcase our work and our technology to the world. This would have a massive impact on the climate and also on local beekeepers. Our product is a smart hive that is IoT enabled and sensor enabled that constantly maintains the optimal temperature and humidity that bee needs to produce honey. With our product, farmers can increase their honey yield and actually have a great impact on their local family and also to the environment. Our project will have tremendous impact in the life of local farmers and beekeepers here in Nigeria and also in Africa because we are producing a product that will help them increase their honey yield and also maximize their profit. And as a country like Nigeria imports over $2 billion worth of honey per year, we are empowering these farmers to cash in in this market and also make the maximum of profit. Our project also have impact in the pharmaceutical and medical industry in that honey is a very important raw material for drug production. The first thing we'll do if we win this competition is to acquire more equipment and raw material to expand our business to two more states in Nigeria, Kaduna and Nasarawa states. That was Emadago Ohiniki William from Nigeria, who started a Valley Bee Tech sensor enabled technology to help farmers monitor their beehives very much. 
international concern is rising about an offensive by Ethiopian and Eritrean government forces in Ethiopia's Tigray region. Ethiopia's federal authorities on Monday say they will assume control of airports and other infrastructure in the region, while the Tigray regional government said it will respect an African Union call for an immediate ceasefire. Mohammad Yusuf reports from Nairobi. Ethiopian authorities said Monday their forces will take charge of the aviation, transport and communication infrastructure in the embattled Tigray region. The head of the Horn Institute for Strategic Studies, Hassan Khananji, told VOA the government's goal is to control the movement of the rebels and humanitarian services in the Tigray region. Any limitations to ability to... Uh transport and move around and communicate tends to heighten uh, an existing, you know, uh, situation such as humanitarian situation is already going on right now in, in Ethiopia. In fact, because number one, uh, humanitarian organizations are going to find it harder to reach those areas. Uh, communication is going to be limited with regard to assisting for help or humanitarian assistance. So, of course, then that is going to uh, make things worse for those who are already vulnerable. The government defended its move to take over key facilities in the Tigray region, saying the move will protect the country's sovereignty and territorial integrity and speed up humanitarian aid to those who need assistance. In a statement, the government blamed the rebel Tigray People's Liberation Front for violating the five-month-old ceasefire in August and carrying out an offensive against government forces and allied militia groups. On Saturday, the chairperson of the African Union Commission, Musa Faki, called for a new ceasefire and resumption of humanitarian services. The Tigray leadership say they are not to blame for the escalation of the conflict and are ready to respect a ceasefire. The TPLF also called for the withdrawal of Eritrean troops in the region and for the international community to press the Ethiopian government to begin peace talks. This month's planned talks in South Africa failed to take off and logistical challenges were blamed for the postponement. The Ethiopian government said Monday it is committed to a peaceful resolution of the conflict through the African Union-led talks. However, the government and TPLF have yet to agree on who should lead the reconciliation process. Nasongo Muliro teaches diplomacy and international relations at the Technical University in Kenya. He says mediation and political settlement take time, but there is an immediate need to push for a ceasefire and provide urgent humanitarian support to the war victims. We should not allow the idea of who should be a mediator to further delay the situation that you have just mentioned, the humanitarian situation is first hand in any peace process. That even before we jump to the mediator, if there is a ceasefire, then have we provided the welfare survival mechanisms for the victims before we think of now? resolving the conflict. The conflict which began in November 2020 in the Tigray region between the government forces and the Tigray rebel groups has led to the deaths of tens of thousands. Rice groups accuse both sides of committing widespread human rights violations. The UN Humanitarian Office says 20 million Ethiopians need humanitarian assistance and thousands of people continue to flee conflict in the north of the country due to conflict. Mohamed Yusuf for VOA News, Nairobi. And that's all we prepared for you this Tuesday. Don't forget to check out voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. 
If you miss this broadcast, go to www.voaafrica.com forward slash South Sudan. We now leave you with Sultan Clinton and the song Jamila. Listening to Sultan Clinton and the song Jamila. I'm your host, John Tanza in Washington. Thanks for taking time to be with us this evening. Remember to join us again tomorrow evening for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America.